At the gates of death, the dragon wing attacks and brings the Baylor demon to its explosive demise, but not before it can gain in two separate swarms of lesser demons to attack the manifestations of Voss's soul. The demons manage to damage and partially consume the soul energy. In so doing, they wreak havoc on the dragons, because they too are connected to Voss. They too are part of her soul. One of the dragons falls, but in the end, they're able to vanquish the demons. And Voss is presented with a gate. Before she can enter, she must choose between two spears presented to her by the Morrigan. The first is a spear made of petrified wood with a dragon tooth tip. The second is a spear made of pure light with a shadowy tip. One represents direct servitude of the Morrigan. The other leaves her connected with the Morrigan, but still relying predominantly on the gods of light and darkness. Her future will be determined by the choice she makes in this moment. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Our session was consumed by the battle between the dragons and the demons, with the players running a wing of five dragons. There was a silver, a copper, a bronze, a green, and a black dragon. The players had to select more than one dragon to run, but I think they had a wonderful time operating these legendary creatures. They had legendary actions that they could take at the end of others' turns, as well as legendary saving throws that proved to actually make this not much of a fight. Even though eventually the black dragon went down, at no time did it feel like the dragons possibly could lose. But this isn't where the campaign session started. We started in the caverns with the party themselves, and as I discussed in the last podcast, Globagul shows up and brings them Voss's body. Now, Globagul, if you've been listening, is a gelatinous cube. And the only way that Globagul could possibly bring Voss up to them is by engulfing her within its acidic form. So there's this very cool cliffhangery moment where they're expecting there to be some opportunity to bring Voss back to life, but the body that they have to work with is now little more than bones. Additionally, they're hearing things coming, and even though I have been threatening to use Krothix since the very, very beginning of designing this sidebar adventure, this is the first time that I bring them into play. And through a nature check, Constantine is able to identify these strange sounds that they're hearing coming from the stone walls moments before the first of the Krothix bursts through. Smash cut to the land of the dead, and here everyone is controlling at least one dragon, except for Voss, who is controlling her sorcerer character, who is astride the silver, and the Baylor demon is coming for them. The Baylor lasts maybe two rounds, maximum, but he is able to gate in other lesser demons. Now, technically, Baylors cannot gate in other lesser demons, or anything for that matter. Overall, I find demon design to be fairly disappointing throughout what I've seen in 5th edition, so I added to the Baylor the ability to gate in other demons. 
They're, of course, in the land of the dead or at the gates of death in this black, misty realm. There's this massive sphere of light and a massive sphere of darkness. Both are the sides of Voss's soul, much larger than these spheres have appeared in other Gates of Death encounters, because she is an Asimir and has more of a connection to this kind of spiritual content. But in truth, the way the entire encounter is set up is that only if the dragons are killed will she truly die, because while these do represent power sources, the Sphere of Light and the Sphere of Darkness, they're not the ultimate power for her soul the way it was for other characters. In the last session prior to this one, it had been established by the Morrigan that Voss mistakenly believed herself to be a child of the Dark God or at the very least to have received her power from the dark burgeoning god Semyana. The truth, she told her, is that you are connected to the earth itself, and that you are gaining your powers from the dragons. And the fact that you exist means that the dragons have returned. She finds this silver dragon manifested in the land of the dead and is able to mount it. And the cliffhanger from the prior session is that a wing of dragons came up out of the mists to help her in her battle against this Baylor demon. And so for the next couple of hours, we go through this very intensive, very dice-heavy, very roll-heavy encounter because every round basically had these dragons employing many legendary actions. It's interesting because, per the rules, a dragon is able to use those legendary actions at the end of another creature's turn. And so when you have five dragons on the field all working together, they're often going at the end of each other's turn. So everybody was using all of their legendary actions every single round. And it was only when I had these swarms of two different types of demons that the battle got interesting. The battle against the Baylor was literally nothing. I believe the Baylor was able to hit once and gate in the other demons before it was destroyed. And even its explosive end was not particularly damaging or impressive to the dragons. The two other types of demons were Nalfsheni and an Ultraloth. I brought in four Nalfsheni and about six Ultraloths. The only moment of tension in the entire session was when two of the Ultraloths teleported onto the back of the Silver Dragon. I'm positive I'm breaking some kind of rule of protocol here, but I felt it was necessary to really just make the session more than just a mathematical exercise in watching five adult dragons destroy a bunch of demons to allow these Ultraloths to teleport right within striking distance of Voss, put her in some danger. When this happened, immediately the silver flew as fast as it could across the field, twisting and spinning. And of course, I required the, the demons to make a saving throw. I didn't require Voss to make a saving throw because I felt the spiritual connection between her and the dragon would mean that she'd be able to stay mounted on it. As things were progressing, I had been giving hints that if Voss were to be connected to the sources of the soul, if Voss were to be connected to either the light or the dark source of soul power, she would have a very interesting power-up. And she was able to do it with the, the source of light, and she had suddenly access to Scorching Ray. Until Voss had access to a spell like Scorching Ray, it was difficult for her to be particularly effective in this battle, considering what was in the field, right? Five adult dragons, a whole horde of high CR demons. In the end, though, the dragons were completely victorious. 
And Voss was faced with this choice that I illustrated at the very top of the podcast. Two spears, one representing essentially being a paladin of the Morrigan in future, and the other representing being a warlock connected to Morrigan in the future. Before the details of that were fully explained, Taylor had an inclination to take the spear that was wrought of petrified wood and a dragon tooth tip. That's the one that was more about direct service to the Morrigan, and essentially was the one that meant she would multi-class ultimately into Paladin. Functionally, she was more interested in being a warlock. At this point, we took a break, and Taylor was able to take a few moments to consider what she really wanted to do. The choice was hers. When we came back from the break, she decided to go with her first character instincts, to take the petrified wood and dragon tooth staff and to see how that played out. And so she grasped it, a portal out of the gates of death opened up, and she was able to go into this realm. Now, normally the characters in the past that have survived this simply wake up in their body, except Voss doesn't really have a body to go back to. Her body is now little more than bones. There's going to be a time frame now where Voss is not in the game. But I wanted to explain where she was during that time, and so I described this very ancient fallen temple that was more like the shell of a building than the building itself, just the uh, the skeletal frame. But there were other people there, and I said that she had a sense that they were other Asimars, and that some of them were older and younger, and it was an eclectic group. This is where she becomes somewhat trained to receive the knowledge, proficiencies, and abilities that will come about when she rejoins the campaign. In the meantime, back in the real world, we introduce her temporary character, which is a Kenku cleric of the Morrigan. And it opens up something that we'll touch on here a little bit more in the lessons learned section. So this Kenku is running from the Krothex and is able to link up with the party, and they proceed not to fight the Krothex, but to run at top speed to try to get out of the cave system. And after a fairly successful skill challenge, they're able to do just that, and they get to the side of the hills north of the town of Deadfall. They have the bones of Voss with them, and they have to figure out what they're going to do next. Overall, though, what had been originally intended as a single-session sidetrack turned into a four-session mini-campaign, mini-adventure, where the, the party went through this dungeon that ended up killing one of their own, forcing us into a Gates of Death encounter, but also introducing a new and interesting quest to get Voss resurrected. What worked, what didn't work, and lessons learned. The players seemed to enjoy running dragons. I think it was a it was a very interesting experience for them within the confines of this kind of battle to have that many dragons on the field. They got to roll a ton of dice, do a ton of damage, and decimate their foes pretty much across the board. It was a fun and good session from that standpoint, but mostly I'm going to touch on a lot of the different uh, challenges. I wouldn't go so far as to say some things did not work, but there were certainly things that I learned and will tweak and adjust in future. 
One of the main reasons that I stopped playing 4th edition well before 4th edition had finished through its run. I was a fan of that edition, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But battles took way too long, and towards the end of playing in 4th edition when I was running, I had a rule that I reduced everything's hit points by 25%. 5th edition seems to predominantly determine the difficulty of an encounter and a monster based on the amount of hit points it has. One easy way to up the challenge rating of any creature in 5th edition is to simply give it more hit points. And that seems to be a lot of what I encountered, and it generated a battle that took over two hours. Of course, I should have expected this, but naturally, I didn't quite think it would be that long. Additionally, when it's all about just hit points, it becomes a war of attrition, which in my humble opinion is nowhere near as engaging as a war that is based on various and sundry cool tactics, spells, maneuvers, things of that nature. So this became more about how much damage can you possibly do? And oh, by the way, the damage is being driven by very similar things round after round after round. Claw and bite, bite attacks, a check to see if your, your breath weapon refreshes, and that was pretty much it. The legendary actions were often tail swipes or the the wing slaps. So again, all of that, I think from a player perspective, was rather entertaining and engaging. On the flip side of it, the Baylor demon is honestly one of the most boring things I've ever seen. It's just a huge sack of hit points with some weapon attacks and a flaming whip. There's really not much else to it that really evokes the the size and the massiveness of this thing, the ferocity of a Baylor demon. Of course, a Baylor demon is just a ripoff of the Balrog from Fellowship of the Ring, the one that fought Gandalf at the bridge. This doesn't represent that creature, in my opinion, and so there wasn't much that it could do. I just hand-waved it, gating in these other demons. I made it take up its round to do that. What would turn out to be its final round? I think I was disappointed in the lack of utility found within a demon as iconic as the Baylor. By contrast, the Nalfejni and the Ultraloths both had a little more utility. They had auras and hypnotic effects and things if you look it in the eye. They had spells that they could cast. Specifically, the Ultraloths were useful. so strange that the smallest things on the board turn out to be the, the things that have the greatest utility in battle. Their spell effects were actually the only moments that they were able to do things which felt like the battle might not just be a complete rout. I think, too, having it set up this way uh, without having Voss in possession of more power right at the beginning kind of nerfed her ability to take part in the battle at the level I would have liked. I think in retrospect, I could have given her control of the Silver Dragon and because we were doubling up in, in other areas, have the other players control just every other dragon, the other four dragons. I should note that uh, one of the players wasn't able to come. Joe wasn't able to attend. So again, while I had designed the entire Krothic encounter to allow for the half-orc fighter 
to be able to get into some melee combat with things. My my attempt was foiled. It's probably for the best because the dragon demon encounter took so long to run that by the time we got to the, what should have been the fight with the Krothix, I'm going to be honest, there are two things on my mind. First, I needed this little mini adventure that wasn't so many to really come to a conclusion. I didn't want us to stay still be inside the adventure even in just one combat during the next session. I intended it to be one, maybe two sessions at most, and it had ballooned into four. Additionally, I was kind of wiped. We play on Saturday nights from 9 to 1 a.m., and by the time we got to the Krothic encounter, I I was completely out of gas. And so the, the lesson for me is certainly to be wary of myself once I'm getting pretty tired, because I'll tend to want to wrap things up and move on. So the Krothic encounter was really a non-thing. It's kind of amusing that my original design for all of this was purely Krothix and how that really got pushed back and pushed back until eventually I, I practically never used them at all, other than to just talk about their presence. And now here we are with the, the party who were pursuing the Balnexicon. They needed forged papers in order to get through the rootlands. They heard tell of this cave system, and Constantine in particular was enticed because there was this shard of a sword that came from the legendary dwarven clan Arkadin. When we come out, Voss is gone. She's just bones. The entire session had really been about Voss and her being drawn into the, the land of death, how she had made a sacrifice of her own life to be there rather than sacrifice her own principles. So the group now is questioning if they have access to Deadfall. The person who is supposed to be their forger is now one of the party. I think they're even questioning if they should go after the Balnexicon. The new element in the story is the Kenku cleric, which is Taylor's temporary character before Voss can be resurrected, has a mission. And the mission is to first lead this party with Voss's bones to find an old farmer. Now, this old man has the ability to perform the resurrection spell as a ritual. And that's completely, you know, just an artifact of the storyline, as opposed to something that sits deeply within the rules. And the ancient temple where he's able to perform the resurrection spell is located in the town of Borlane, which is where the party was headed in pursuit of the Balnexicon. Isn't it nice how that worked out? I think my intention is to take a more pointed role in focusing the party on quests. I'm going to be taking a good step back from a pure sandbox perspective. I think the party just does not have the cohesion around party goals necessary for a sandbox to work. Maybe the biggest learning, not specific to this session. If you're going to be running something that's somewhat sandboxy, everyone needs to have the same, almost exact motivation. They need to want to do the same thing. This way, when they have decisions that they need to make, they can arrive at them. In this case, we don't have that, and so I'm going to be not necessarily railroading, but I'm going to be focusing their energies in one direction. And within that direction, they'll have decisions to be made. But they're going to Borlane. They're going to pursue this resurrection. And as a result, it makes a lot of sense to try to get their hands on the Balnexicon.
I'd like to close out by talking about Kenku and the unique challenge that they pose. They can't actually speak. That wasn't true in 4th edition, I don't think, which is where I first really became aware of Kenku, specifically as a playable race. Yes, they had mimicry, yes, they could create these alternate sounds, but they could still speak a language. That's not the case in 5th edition. They actually can't speak. They can only use various sounds. Now, having watched Critical Role, I saw how Matt Mercer handled it, and he was able to let the Kenku in in his game say certain phrases as a mimic. And I, I've seen online where folks are just like, well, if they can mimic sounds, why can't they just speak? The answer seems to be nested in the curse that afflicts the race, as well as their inability to generate things all on their own. Everything has to just be a copy. We're going to give it a try. There's a, a a list of phrases that our Kenku can say, and you're supposed to be able to narrate things and sounds that they're doing to try to convey complex ideas. It all seems pretty silly to me. I don't I can't imagine that you'd be able to convey complex information via bizarre sounds that someone everyone would be able to interpret as meaning something complicated like, you know, like how to address a puzzle, how what what should be the next step of the party. I, I think it would be very simplistic information like pointing at things. I, of course, have brought this on myself because I was the one that generated this temporary character. My plan, therefore, is to give a lot of leeway in the communication. I have allowed Mir's ability to speak with animals to make this kind of work because I believe the Kenku should be able to speak the language of birds or the language of birds, should be able to communicate the way a bird would. Players want to be able to communicate. They want to be able to say the things they need to say. It's a it's a huge part of, of the game, and anything that nerfs that is easily forgotten in the moment, right? When, oftentimes, when Bruce is transformed into an animal, he will say complicated sentences or explain a look that the animal is giving as conveying this, that, and the other thing information, which, of course, uh, I... I think is ridiculous. I'm being very easygoing about this simply because, again, communication is the whole damn point of, of our game. And if you can't do it, you really don't get to play in an odd sense. So that is something that is going to be the challenge, the challenge moving forward over the next several sessions as the party proceeds to eventually head to Borlane to both find the Balnexicon and resurrect Voss. Everyone's leveled up. The party's now fourth level. Everyone in the party's fourth level. I anticipate that by the time they're able to resurrect Voss, if they're able to resurrect her, that everyone will be fifth level. And the plan is to keep Voss at the same level as the party. I think the next several sessions, once the campaign kicks off again in a, in a couple of weeks, are going to be a little more straightforward. I've allowed things to descend into the abstract. The gods are actually taking part in the storyline, which is always a tricky business. And I'm very eager to get things back onto a little bit more of a mundane track and let the players figure out how to navigate the rootlands. I'm hoping to put more emphasis on a couple of different players who haven't had as much spotlight time, and in so doing, bring balance to the campaign overall. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast, the best thing you can do is help us extend and promote our listenership. 
Depending on the platform you use for podcasts, you can give us a review, you can like, you can click the heart button, or you can reach out to us on social media. I'm on Twitter at anatomycamp, and you can reach me via email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, no players were physically harmed during the recording of this podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>